Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, like Emily said earlier, uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. We're glad that you're here with us, especially if you are a visitor, or maybe this is even your first time. We're, we're thankful that you're here. We're thankful that you gave up a few hours of your day off, probably, for most of you, uh, to come join us. And uh, I'm excited to get to, to preach this morning. If, if you don't know me, I'm, uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. Uh, the other pastor, Chris, who, who preaches most of the time, he's uh, on a short vacation with his family over this weekend, but uh, so it's my turn to preach, and maybe some of you don't know me. Uh, one thing you should know about me, or something that's a pretty uh, big part of who I am, is, is I'm an extrovert, and so maybe some of you in this room are, are also like that. Uh, I, I really just hate being alone, really just hate being alone. Not that uh, being alone is a bad thing. My wife's the exact opposite. She loves being alone. Uh, yeah, an example of that. So when I used to be a second grade teacher, and I had a couple months off in the summer, and uh, by like 10 o'clock, I'd have cabin fever. I'd just have to get out of the house, have to go someplace, a park, a coffee shop, so I could just be around people. Whereas my wife, uh, there was times when she was looking for a job after grad school, and she wouldn't leave the house from Sunday, going to church until the next Sunday, uh, just based on she loved. She loves our home. She loves being at home, and she gets drained being around people. She loves people, but me, I just... Yeah, I really hate being alone. And we're going to see that theme today in our passage. We're going to see how being alone or how loneliness is actually a problem. And we're going to see in Genesis that even in paradise, even in uh, a perfect place with perfect relationships, that uh, being alone, that loneliness, uh, et cetera, is still a problem. So this morning, uh, our sermon is even going to be entitled, Paradise is incomplete. So we're in a, a sermon series in the book of Genesis, and uh, right now the setting is the Garden of Eden. So we're in paradise. Everything is perfect, yet we're going to see that there is something that is incomplete, something that uh, is missing. So if you are uh, brand new to the Bible, Genesis is the, the very first book of the Bible at the very, the very beginning, um, and we're at the very beginning of that book. So we're actually in chapter two, so it's probably page two if you want to open a pew Bible and, and, and find our passage for this morning. But uh, Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, and especially the first two chapters, starts off with the creation account. So God, as creator, creates a universe and everything in it. He fills the universe with uh, his creation. And uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seem to be a bit different. There's uh, some differences between the creation account in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and essentially, Chris, Chris shared this last week as well, but essentially what's going on is we have two uh, different genres of, of creation. So Genesis 1 is, is more like a poem or written more like a song. It's, it's very poetic. It's got lots of repetition. It just sounds very much uh, like a song, whereas Genesis 2, also writing about creation, is written more like narrative, more like uh, a story or a letter telling about something. And so we're going to look at Genesis 2 today. That's where we're at. Um, our passage is uh, verses 18 through 25. We're going to go to the next one more slide. So early, earlier, a few weeks ago, we read uh, in Genesis 1, uh, God created humanity. He created uh, male and female. So in Genesis 1, 21, we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there's some more before and after that, but it's kind of the summary verse there in Genesis 1. And then today what we're going to look at uh, in Genesis 2, 18 through 25 is kind of like that Genesis 1, 28 uh, expanded upon, or the, the, the how 
And so they're not contradictory, but rather uh, they complement each other. It's as if Genesis 1.27 is like a hyperlink, and you read this. Okay, God created man in his own image. He created male and female. How did that look, or how, how did that happen? Or what are some details? You click on that, and it kind of expands into what we're going to see today. So we'll reference Genesis 1.27, uh, God creating man in his own image, and some other things that happen around there. God telling them to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. That uh, is a little bit earlier on in the story, and we've, we've covered that. But we'll, we'll talk about, about that a little bit today. And just so you know, that is uh, where it's coming from. So we're going to start right away. If uh, you want to turn your pew Bibles, you can. All the scripture will be up here on the screen. It's also inside your worship folder as well. We're going to start in verse uh, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called living creature, that was, his, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed, it, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it teaches us. Uh, Spirit, we ask you to uh, enlighten us, to, to open the eyes of our hearts, help us to understand uh, what you are doing here, what you are teaching here, that we pray, uh, yeah, that we would understand marriage, we would understand gender and singleness even better, and uh, especially with what they point to. Pray this in your name. Amen. So our passage right away, it starts off with a problem. So if you remember Genesis 1, or leading up to this, the creation account, this kind of uh, repetition I was telling you about, we see this happen again and again and again. We see God speak, and then it is created, and then God responds by saying, it was good. So we see this phrase again and again and again and again. It was good. 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 We see that phrase 10 times, and then the pattern is broken. In verse 18, we see that there's actually something that's not good. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. So there's something that breaks this pattern of, of all of God's creation being good. It is not good that the man should be alone. It's important for us to remember where in this story we are too. We're still in Genesis 2. The fall hasn't happened. Sin hasn't entered the world yet. Death has not entered the world. And so when, when God says that there's something that's not good, what does he mean by that? Well, it can't mean that it's sinful, that it's evil that it's wrong in, in, in that type of way, but rather he's saying that it's incomplete. It's not done. There's, there's something missing. Creation is lacking or unfinished. And if you remember back in uh, Genesis 1, we referenced it earlier, but when God created mankind, he said that they were unique. They were different than all the other animals and the different parts of creation in that mankind was able to reflect and mirror God like nothing else. Humanity was made in God's image. 
And so our job as, as humans is to uniquely reflect and mirror our God. Our God who in his very essence, in his very nature, is community. So Christians worship a God who is a trinity. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. So in his nature, he has relationship. He has loving community. So a big problem here, why it's unfinished, why it is not good, why it is incomplete, is because a, a single human cannot fully reflect our triune God, our God who in his nature is community. So, so partly, that it, it, partly that is what is going on. Man cannot do what he was created to do by himself. It's kind of unique or interesting here to think about this too. So God, or sorry, uh, man has God above him. He has perfect relationship with his God. Remember, sin hasn't entered the world yet. He has creation beneath him. He has dominion over the animals and the plants and, and the land. Yet, there's still something that's not good. We might think, hey, this, this is strange. Why, why is this not good, even though he has a perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with everything else? And it reminds us that uh, although our relationship with God is, is ultimate, first and foremost, that we were created for relationship. You can have perfect relationship with your God, yet at the, at the same time, there's still something missing, something that should flow out of that relationship with your God, and that is relationship, friendship, community. So we see in this, in our first verse, it starts off by saying, it is not good that the man should be alone. That there, there's a problem here. And for, for two reasons. First reason, like I said, uh, loneliness. He's alone. So we were, we were designed and we were created to have relationships. So being lonely, being alone, completely alone, with no one uh, like your kind around is, is a problem. And secondly, too, the reason that this is a problem is, again, he can't fully image our God as, as a single, uh, single person. So this reminds us that we're designed to be in community. All right, so God, right off the, this, this doesn't hang for very long. Right away, the next verse, God says, he's going to remedy this problem. He's going to finish his creation. He's going to make it complete. Verse 18 ends with the Lord God saying, I will make him a helper fit for him. So God will create something, someone, in order to complete where this man is lacking. Someone to help remedy his aloneness and to give him the ability to fully image God in a way that he cannot by himself. Verse 19, this is, this is how God begins to produce a solution. Verse 19, And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper to, to be found uh, fit for him. So God brings all the animals in front of Adam, yet this problem isn't solved. A, a helper is not found. No one who can help him image God like a loving community. No one who is his equal and can help subdue creation and have dominion over it, no one to compliment him, to come alongside him where he is lacking. So he has all these different animals come in front of them. Some he might look at and say, wow, you actually, you do help me in some ways. You actually do help me plow the ground and I can kind of have some dominion, but I can't really communicate with you. I can't really have a real relationship with you. 
And like Peter kind of got to, Adam saw animal after animal after animal after animal and must have been thinking, man, where is my equal? Will I ever truly find a helper? And this word helper, when God says, I, I will make a helper fit for him, it actually, or, or the word means one who supplies strength in an area that is lacking in the helped. So again, one, one who supplies strength where the person receiving it is lacking. So man alone was lacking. He needed help. He was incomplete when by himself he needed someone. I just want to stop there and, and just kind of address something that I thought of a, a few years ago or years ago when I was studying this passage for the first time, and maybe some of you are too. You know where this is going. You know this helper is going to end up being the woman. It's going to end up being Eve, and you might be thinking, oh, I don't like that. She's called a helper. It kind of seems degrading. It kind of seems like a, a condescending term for God to call Eve the helper. But actually, this word that we translate into helper, it doesn't imply that the helper is either stronger or weaker at all. It actually, like, like we just said, it means one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the helped. So it's someone that, that helps uh, with their strength, someone who is weak in some areas. In fact, this, this same word, the same phrase, the same name, the helper, is actually used to describe God. All over the book of Psalms especially, and then uh, Jesus in the book of John calls the Holy Spirit the helper, capital H, helper. Jesus says one of the Holy Spirit's names is the helper. And so if God has this name, gives this name to himself, we can know that God's not trying to be condescending here when he calls uh, Eve a helper, but rather, just like within our God, there's, there's three persons and they have uh, equal worth, equal value. They're all fully God, yet they do some different things. We saw that in creation, Genesis 1, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, being all equally God, yet having some, some distinct and different roles that they were doing there. So if that's the case there, we can assume that it would also be the case in relationships, in humanity, in marriage. All right, let's keep going. So God looks at all of his creation. He calls it good, 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 good. Then there's a break in the pattern, and we see that something's not good. And he brings all these animals to try to kind of fix this problem, yet no helper is found that is fit for him. So God must do a new thing. He must create again. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God solves this problem. He creates a helpmate, a companion, a bride for this man. Commentators and theologians make, make a big deal about how God created Eve. They say, well, he could have done it the same way he created man. He could have formed her from the dust of the ground and breathed into her life. But instead, for some reason, he chooses to create her from a rib from Adam. And a lot of commentators and theologians say it, they, he, he does that in that way in order to share, to demonstrate her place as a co-image bearer and as a co-subduer of creation. So she is his equal. She is uh, still fully, fully human and has the same responsibilities as man does to, to be an image bearer of God and to be a subduer of creation. In the creation of mankind, we actually see both, right? We see equality. We see both man and woman being, uh, having full, or having the same worth, the same value, 
Yet at the same time, they complement each other. To be clear, complement with an E, not an I. They're not saying like, you know, oh, husband, you're so handsome. Not like that. Compliment, like, like where something is lacking, the other one completes it or complements it. So we see both. We, so we see equality and worth, yet we see complementarity. Where one is lacking, the other one helps out. Also, we just talked about this. If we see this in our God, if we see our God being, all three persons being equal, yet they, they do different things intentionally. They listen to each other. They uh, obey each other. They are sent, and they send different members of the Trinity. We can understand that that would be the same if in, in humanity, if we were to image and mirror our God. So after God brings animal after animal after animal after animal in front of Adam, he finally puts him to sleep and then creates and then brings him the one that was created for him. He sees someone that is like him, yet different. He sees someone who is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, someone who finally fits with him, who complements him where he is lacking. And God brought the woman to the man, verse 23, and the man says, he, he sees Eve coming to him and he responds like this, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the first marriage begins. The problem of man being alone is remedied. What was called not good is now made good. What was incomplete is now made complete. And look at just a few verses later how their marriage is described. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Just a little uh, public service announcement from your pastor. Don't Google image search that verse. There's a uh, lot of great verses you should search in the Bible, but uh, be careful with that one. So we see that they're naked, yet without any shame, literally and figuratively bearing it all, nothing to hide, and being completely known both inside and out, yet without shame. Something we can't really understand because of our fallen nature, but we see that this is, this is how it was designed. This was God's plan for marriage. They were able to know each other completely, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and were wanted. We're still wanted. We're still desired, even though they were fully known, naked yet without shame. This is how God created marriage, and this is, and the reason for that is God wants us to see his love for his people in that. Just like that, God knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows our pasts. He knows our minds, and he still loves us unconditionally. We'll unpack that a little bit later in, uh, in just a bit. So Genesis 2 ends with the author kind of stepping back. So he's been telling the story for a while. He's going to kind of step back from the story and interject just a little bit of commentary on the implications of what just happened. So man was alone. It wasn't good. He created a wife for him. He, he united them in the first marriage. God, uh, kind of in this marriage language, walks uh, his daughter down the aisle in the garden, hands her over to Adam. But the author kind of steps back and says, because of what we just saw, and then interjects a little commentary here, verse 24, he says, this is how marriages work best. This is how marriages do the best job of showing that marriage is actually more about God's love for us than about just two humans being married. Verse 24, 
He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Genesis 2 tells us marriage is really important. So important that it actually changes familial relationships. We don't stop respecting and loving our parents after we get married, yet there is now a new person who is our priority rather than our parents, rather than our siblings. And we actually become a brand new family. We see in uh, verse 24 and 25, we see physical and sexual intimacy. We see this phrase, one flesh, which again mirrors our God, our God who has incredible unity within the Trinity, three persons and one God. And we also see this, this idea of one flesh. So one person was by himself and he was alone, he was lonely, and it was not good. And then through this marriage we see that that loneliness is destroyed, that they can know each other, that they're fully known and accepted, that there's someone like them, yet a little bit different. All right, so if God is the creator of marriage, if he's the one that designed it intentionally, it didn't just happen, he didn't just accidentally create it, even say, oh, they're getting married and doing married stuff. I didn't think about that. He actually did, was very intentional in all of this. So if that's the case, we look to him to help us define marriage, to understand marriage, to ask the question, what is marriage all about? We don't look to, to Cosmo or to MTV or to even maybe our parents and what our friends are telling us about. First and foremost, we look to the Bible. We see, what, what does God say marriage is about? Why did he create marriage? What, what's the point? And just like we've seen uh, throughout this series, we, we've done it in all previous sermons here too, we're going to look ahead to see how does the rest of the Bible read our passage? How does the rest of the Bible uh, understand Genesis 2? And we're going to look at the gospel. So Jesus' death and resurrection, how does that inform and influence and change and fulfill and uh, expand how we understand marriage? But before we move into this, talking a bunch about marriage, we're first going to just address one thing about singleness. So we're talking about marriage because our passage does. So we're going to spend a lot of time there. But I want to briefly just say three things for those of us who are single. And if you're not single today, please don't check out as well. Those of us who are married, we easily forget how it is to be single. We easily forget how the, the challenges of it, how it feels, uh, expectations, a lot of that kind of stuff. So as, uh, as a Christian, love your single brothers and sisters here, your family members, your community group members. Love them well by trying to understand them well. So hear, hear me out for, for these next three points, even, even if you're not single. So for the singles, first thing we need to remember, and the Bible speaks very strongly about, uh, both marrieds and singles can have deep relationships, community, and friendships. So in Genesis 2, the problem wasn't that Adam was single, specifically single, that he didn't have a wife. The problem was that he was alone. And God, God uh, answers that problem by giving him a wife. But the, the point is that the, the solution to loneliness, the solution to being alone, is not just getting married. It could be, but it is for friendship. The solution is relationship and community. All, hum, all of humanity is designed for friendship and community. So singles, you don't, you don't image God less than your married friends or family members just because you aren't married, but rather 
through friendships, through community, through relationships, and we'll talk about a little bit later, through the body of Christ, we now are able to, to image our God who is a, a loving community in his essence. Secondly, singleness doesn't mean that you're living an unfulfilled life. At times it might feel like that, or I, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe some of you who are single are thinking, wow, I have a great life. I'm not tied down. Those, those poor married people and parents, they have the unfulfilled life. But often people uh, feel like this, that their, their life doesn't have full meaning or they're, they're really missing out. But actually there's, there's someone really important in the Bible who never was married, yet lived the fullest, most complete human life ever. His name was Jesus. You probably heard of him. Also, the, the Apostle Paul as well, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, was also single, if not for his whole life, at least uh, when he was a Christian and, and, and wrote all those books in the New Testament. And so we have, by example, we see lots or a, a number of really important people that lived the ultimate human experience who didn't have marriage. So singleness does not mean that you're living an unfulfilled life. And then finally, singleness is a gift. It might not feel like it at times, but it is a gift. Paul, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, the guy that was also single, he argues that singleness has some incredible advantages over being married, especially in terms of uh, being fully devoted to God and spreading the gospel. If you read First uh, Corinthians 7, I'm not going to read that, but if you want to go back and read that, you can see his argument. He argues, hey, if you're single, I want you to, my personal opinion is that you would stay like that because you can be undivided. You can fully focus on your relationship with Christ and spreading the gospel and, and th things like that. Whereas if you're married, you're divided. And that's okay. It's a good thing to, for a husband to focus on his wife and a wife to focus on her husband and parents to focus on their kids. That's a good thing. But if you're single, you don't have to be undivided. You can fully focus on your relationship with God, on uh, spreading the gospel. I, uh, I've talked to the number of singles here at Hiawatha and practically how this has played out in their lives. One, one lady in particular has shared her story and said, she, she gets this. I mean, it's tough, but she gets this. And she's shared how, well, right now I am single. And so since I have a little more extra free time, a little less, uh, I'm not as divided as some other married couples and parents here at Hiawatha. I want to give more of my time to help teach their kids downstairs and to bless them with that. And so that could be your story. Maybe not. But uh, see singleness as a gift. See singleness as a way that you can be fully devoted to your God. Spread the gospel. Uh, pursue other people. Serve other people in a way that, that marrieds shouldn't, can't, because they are, they do have a divided allegiance. They should take care of their their spouse, and their family. All right, so today as we continue to talk about marriage, know that marriage is not the ultimate goal. There's not a verse in the Bible that says get married or else you're living a substandard Christian life or that the reason Jesus came and died on the cross was to get you a spouse. Marriage is great, and we're going to talk a lot about marriage and why it's so great, but know that marriage is not the ultimate goal. It's a gift, but so is singleness. Everyone including those who are single, can have what that gift of marriage points to. So marriage is a, is a shadow. It's a picture. It's an arrow pointing to God's love for us. So whether you're single, whether you're married, or maybe you're married to uh, uh, a non-Christian spouse, someone that doesn't uh, have faith, you can also um, be in this as well. But, but everyone know that, that marriage is not the ultimate goal. What marriage points to 
is the ultimate goal. We'll talk more about that in a little bit as well. Marriage is just a shadow of the reality. But at the same time, marriage is really important. It's in our passage, so we're going to talk about it today. Hebrews 13, another book in the New Testament, speaking to, to marrieds and singles, to kids and to adults, says that the whole church should, high, should hold marriage uh, in high honor. They should respect it. They should honor it because of what it points to, because it's a picture that we see every single day that helps us remind us of Jesus' love for us, for his church. So throughout the Old Testament, we see that God describes himself as a loving husband and his people, uh, Israel, the Jewish people, describes them as his wife. God says that like a good husband, throughout the New Testament, he says again and again, like a good husband, he loves his people, his bride, his wife. He protects them. He provides for them. He serves them, and he leads them. And then when Jesus shows up in the story, God in flesh, he clarifies this view or helps us understand it even better. He calls the church his bride, and he calls himself the true and the ultimate husband. See this all over the New Testament, and one of, one of the main places we see this is in Ephesians 5, and we're going to look at that for the last few minutes of our time today. So Paul, the same author that I told you about earlier, who was single himself, he writes about marriage, and he actually quotes Genesis. He quotes the passage that we looked at this morning, and he says that the ultimate meaning of marriage is more, or more clearly, not, not just God-loving humanity, but specifically Jesus loving his bride, his wife, the church. We're going to read from Ephesians 5. We're going to look at a, a number of verses in that chapter. We're going to start uh, at the very end, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. So Paul argues, he, he quotes Genesis 2 here. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So Paul just comes right out and says that, hey, this is tough to understand. This mystery is profound. It's deep. But let me tell you, let me simplify it for you. Marriage is pointing to Christ and his love for the church. So marriage in the Old Testament pointed ahead to God's love, his, his committed love for his people. And now in the New Testament, we see uh, marriage pointing to Jesus' love, his committed love for the church. So in the marriage context, Husbands represent Christ, and wives represent the church. Or, another way you could say, within the marriage context, husbands are Christ figures, and wives are church figures. So marriage is about so much more than just ourselves. It's about so much more than just our own happiness and fulfillment and what we get out of it. But rather, as Christians, our marriage play out a beautiful display, a powerful drama of Jesus' relationship with his church. Here in Ephesians, the author is arguing that when, when people see a godly marriage, or maybe not a godly marriage even, when they just see a, a, a healthy, positive, beautiful interaction within a marriage, that it represents Jesus and how he loves and takes care of his church and how the church responds to that love. So look for that. That's our call today, to look for that. Singles and marrieds alike, adults and kids and youth alike, when you see something beautiful or powerful, something that moves you, something that you're attracted to within a marriage, think about that is how God loves me. Or that's how the church responds to Jesus' great love. We often don't get there. We often stop with, oh man, he's such a great husband. She's such a great wife. Or they're so in love. Or they're so cute. 
But we need to move beyond that and say, wow, that's actually a mirror. That's a reflection of how Jesus loves us or how the church responds to our God's great salvation. So intentionally do this. Intentionally look for this. Intentionally make that connection, especially this week. Just practice that. Whenever you see something great within a marriage, think about how that reflects the gospel. So Paul in Ephesians, he starts this chapter, he starts chapter 5 by reminding us, again, back to, back to Genesis 1, he reminds us that we're made in the image of God. We're made to reflect our God. And then he uh, kind of focuses in and says, Christians especially should mirror Jesus. And specifically how he denied himself and gave up himself for our sake. Uh, Ephesians 5 starts with, Paul writing, therefore, be imitators of God. Genesis 1 language day. Should remind us of, of our job to be, uh, or our uh, calling to be made in the image of God. As beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he, he continues this argument by saying, if we're supposed to image our God, who is both Trinity, has, has equality and worth, yet distinct uh, roles or distinct jobs or distinct uh, aspects, then we can expect to see that within our marriages. And if our marriage's main goal is to represent Jesus' relationship with the church, then we can expect that we would see that in our marriages as well. So Paul, we're going to keep on going in Ephesians 5. Paul is going to now, he's going to explain the ideal Christian marriage, what we should work towards, the, the way that a marriage can best show off the gospel. None of us are going to be perfect at this. If, if we read this and you're like, oh man, I am horrible at this, then uh, just know you're in good company. We're not, we're not perfect at this, but this is what we strive for. And know that this is hard. What, about, what, what he's about to describe is really hard. It's hard because we have sinful, fallen natures. It's not naturally what we want to do. We'd rather be selfish. We'd rather take care of ourselves. So it's not natural for us, but also know that it was hard for Jesus. Jesus loving the church and, and denying himself was tough. It wasn't, it wasn't just easy. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and how he prayed to God the Father. He was not saying, oh man, could we just speed this up? Get me through the torture and the betrayal and being left and thrown up on the cross. He was willing to do it because he loved us and he chose to do it, yet it was hard for him. And it's hard for the church to respond to Christ's love. We often don't want to listen to what he's teaching us. We don't want to submit to his, his leadership. We want to uh, flirt with other gods or other idols. And so it's hard for the church. So if it is hard for the church and it's hard for Jesus, we can understand that uh, within our marriages, uh, being an example of that, it's also going to be tough. So Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, let your marriage resemble Jesus' love for his bride. And this is what it will look like if you do that. This is how it can most fully be described and shown. Verse 22 starts with the wives. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should sub <clears throat> so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Crazy statement, Right? crazy statement to hear in 2016 in america even more crazy to hear in its original context so in a jewish context in a jewish world 
a, a woman was, was less than a person. She had, she had very few legal rights. She had no real status, and she was considered property of her husband or, or her father. And it was even worse in the Greek world. The wife was, was often not much better than a slave or a servant. And she was just responsible for taking care of the home and the children. Well, the husband received pleasure and companionship from other women outside of the home. Yet what Paul does here is he addresses her as a free moral agent. He says, in Christ, you have freedom. You have freedom to do a lot of things now. And he says, use this freedom to do this. Paul is arguing that she should not just submit and respect and love her husband because he's her master. He doesn't say that, but he says do that because you're actually doing it to the Lord Jesus. Not because she's going to get beaten or abused or abandoned or divorced, but because it actually demonstrates something even greater than her. It demonstrates Jesus's love for the church, his, his authority and his care for his bride. Wives can show off the gospel through respecting their husbands and by modeling how the church responds to Christ. Then Paul speaks to husbands. So guys, wake up. Listen up if you're uh, kind of off in la-la land here. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, Love your wife like Christ loved the church. And how? Paul makes that very clear. How did Christ love his church? He gave himself up for her. Are you doing that? Are you denying your, your desires, your wants, your preferences? Are you giving up your time, your talent, even, even your needs for your wife? Husbands, the way we lead and love and care for our wives is by dying to ourselves just like Jesus did for the church. That is how you love your bride. Jesus doesn't lead and love his church as a selfish tyrant or as an abusive king, but rather as a caring, protecting, providing, sacrificial servant. Again, this is unthinkable for the context that is reading this, both Jew and Greek alike. He's calling husbands to have deep tenderness, compassion, intimacy with their wives, and passion for their marriage. No longer seeing her as a servant, or as a slave, or as a possession, as a thing, or a sexual partner. But instead, he says, look at her the way Jesus looks at his church. Deny yourself for the benefit of her, so that she'll reach her full potential as a daughter of God. Theologian and commentator John Stott comments on this, speaking to husbands, speaking of godly husbands, he longs to see her liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, the husband gives himself. Husbands, does that describe the way that you love your wife? Your wife? Do you long to see her liberated from anything that spoils her true feminine identity in Christ. Are you doing that? Are we doing that? And then Paul ends this argument. He says, everything I just said about how wives and husbands 
should treat each other, how they should view each other, how they should reflect the gospel. He says, all this, I'm going to ground it. The reason for all this is not popular opinion, is not cultural norms, is not the values of the nation or the people group that they're a part of, but rather he grounds us in Genesis 2, where we just started. He grounds us in creation. He says, because God created man and woman like this, because he created and designed marriage like this, and because marriage is ultimately, especially after the cross, once we fully see how God, uh, in, in the greatest way, loved us and served us, because of all that, that's why you should love and respect each other in this way. He grounds it in Genesis 2. He ends all of this with verse 31. Again, we read this before, but he quotes Genesis 2. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. The Gospel Transformation Bible summarizes Ephesians 5 in this way. It says, Jesus Christ is the focal point of history and the reference point for all of our obedience. Husbands, find in Christ a model for sacrificial, loving, strong, tender headship. Wives, find in the church's submission to Christ a model for intelligent, gracious, trusting, respectful submission. These roles are meant to be an expression of the unchanging gospel dynamics of Christ's relationship to the church and the church's relationship to him. So we could just say, or pastors maybe have said, or you know, your friends or your parents have maybe said, good Christians should love their spouses. If you're a good husband, you should serve your wife. If you're a good wife, you should respect your husband. And we can say that, and that's not a wrong thing to say, yet it doesn't last very long, or it just becomes a law in and of itself, and then we're just doomed to fail or have low expectations. Or when we can't do it, we just feel so discouraged, we kind of just, just give up. But if our marriages are about more than just ourselves, if we've been given the gift of God telling his powerful story of salvation through our marriage, then we're, we're motivated much, much more. If our marriages are ultimately not about us, not just about our happiness or our self-actualization or our fulfillment or what we get out of it, but rather a picture of Jesus' love for his church, then what do unhealthy marriages say to those who are watching? What story do they tell to ourselves and to the people in our lives. So we've seen the perfect example of this, Christ loving his church and the church responding to that. We've spent a lot of time looking at how Christian marriage should look like because of that. But now, what, what story does a bad marriage tell? So whether this is kind of descriptive of your marriage or whether you've seen marriages like this, your parents, your friends, siblings, things like that, or whether you're just uh, tempted to go in one of these areas, what story are you telling, or is this marriage telling when it's unhealthy? So let's, let's give a couple examples. The first one, uh, an abusive, mean dictator of, of a husband. What story does that tell? If you're tempted to, to be a dictator of a husband, if you're, if you're mean and abusive physically, emotionally, verbally, what, what story does that tell to your wife, to yourself, to the people who see that? It says, well, Jesus is like that then. He's abusive. He uses you for what he just gets out of you. He abuses the power and authority that is his. He's not a loving God, but rather he's easily angered, and you better watch out. You mess up, and he'll get you. And that he uses people selfishly for his own benefit at their great expense. Lies, 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 right? An anti-gospel, the, the opposite of the gospel. 
What about a husband on the, on the opposite extreme who's incredibly passive, who's weak, and who's apathetic? Doesn't care about his marriage, about his wife. What is that? What story does that tell? It tells the world that Christ really doesn't care that much, that he can't really defeat their enemies of sin and, and death, and that even if he could, he wouldn't really want to, that he's kind of just bored with us and, and doesn't really care that much. Or what about a wife who is incredibly disrespectful, who's abusive and, and in all areas is, just, is extremely independent? What does that show? It shows that the church doesn't really need God, doesn't really need Christ that much, and that Christ doesn't, or doesn't need to receive our honor, our love, our respect. It shows that we're actually kind of okay on, okay on our own and that we don't really need a Savior. And again, just to be clear, we're talking about context of marriage. Independence outside of marriage is a, is a great thing. But if it comes at the expense of a healthy marriage, or, then it can tell this story. And then a, a fourth example here. What does a marriage where the wife is the only one who cares about the marriage? A wife who's the only one that pursues and initiates and serves her husband. What does that show? It shows that that's how we earn our salvation. In story form, in, in picture form, it shows that we're the ones that pursue God. We're the ones that are the initiators. We are the ones that serve God and that make our spiritual marriage with him work. That he doesn't do anything. It's really all about us. And then finally, one of the worst ones, infidelity. And maybe this has really touched you deeply, whether it's in your own life, whether it's your parents, whether it's loved ones. There's all over the place infidelity as well as even just, you know, porn, uh, infidelity within the mind. What, what, what does that tell yourself? What does that tell your spouse? What does that tell the people in your life? Well, if it's a guy who's being unfaithful to his wife, a guy who's cheating on his wife, the story that tells is that Jesus will do that to us. That he's not, that he doesn't have fidelity. He's not going to be faithful to us. That he's going to leave us if we don't perform well. If we're not beautiful enough to him. If we don't please him enough, he's out of here. So guys, think about that gospel thought when you're tempted to look at porn and your wife catches you and feels like you are uh, wanting something better than her. It shows, uh, it shows in story form that that's the way that our God is like, that he will just run from us or find a new church, find a new person, find a new uh, people if we're not beautiful to him, if we're not pleasing to him. Lies, lies. Or if the wife is unfaithful, what story does that tell? Well, it, it tells that, well, we don't really need Jesus. That there might be a better God out there to follow. A better idol that will make me more happy or more fulfilled. Or, or a God who will give us big, bigger and better stuff. Again, lies, lies, lies. All right, as we leave here today, kind of three things I want us to take away. First thing, through the gospel, so through repentance and faith through trusting in jesus christ for the forgiveness of our sins giving us new life in the gospel we're no longer alone maybe today you feel like you're very alone maybe you feel very lonely maybe you don't have a lot of friends or maybe whatever it might be you feel very lonely or people just don't know you very well you have stuff in your past you just don't want to share or people just don't get you maybe you feel very lonely or physically you are alone a lot through the gospel and in the gospel, we are no longer alone. First of all, 
we have become unified. We have become one with God. And through that, we also are unified with his body. Jesus doesn't just save us to himself, which he does, and that's first and foremost, the most important. But he saves us into a new community. He saves us into a new spiritual family. And so now we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a spiritual family that takes care of us and protects us and loves us and serves us and, and begins to kill that loneliness. And again, we're not perfect like, the, like uh, think about your <laughs> biological siblings, right? You fight, you don't always get along. And so we're going to see that a bit within the church as well. We're not, we're not all perfect. But just look around, or today as we take communion, look around and see, God saved me into a spiritual family. He saved me into a community. Loneliness begins to be defeated now, first and foremost, through my relationship with him. And, also, and uh, out of that, also with a relationship in a church. He doesn't just say, like it was in Eden, all you really need is just a relationship with me, and that's it. That's good, that's first and foremost, yet, as it was described in Genesis 2, it wasn't complete. We needed human relationships, we needed friendships. So also this kind of goes against the idea that all we really need or for our faith to really be strengthened is, is just me and Jesus and the mountains. Or me and Jesus and, you know, fishing on a pontoon. That's great. That's great for a time. But again, we saw Adam in the garden, perfect relationship with God, which we don't, we now have in Christ, but we still live in a fallen world. But we see Adam, perfect relationship with God and with all of creation, and still it was not good. It was still incomplete. So we need each other. We need the church. Secondly, in the gospel, we can now be known fully yet without shame. So maybe that maybe to maybe today you're full of a lot of shame. Maybe there's not many people or maybe there's no one who really knows you. They don't know your past, they don't know what you've done. They don't know what you've gone through or what's been done to you. Maybe you just know your heart and your mind and your motives really really well and you don't dare tell anyone else because if they knew you you'd be rejected. You wouldn't be accepted. But in the gospel, we see a return to Eden. We see that we can be known fully, inside and out. We can be figuratively naked in front of, in front of God, in front of each other, yet without shame. We can be fully known and unconditionally loved and wanted and desired. And that only comes in the gospel. So first and foremost, we get this with God. We get this through Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. He says, God the Father looks at us and says, I know what you've done. I know the sin that you've done. I know your heart. But when I look at you, I see Christ's blood on you. There's no shame. There's no guilt anymore. I love you unconditionally. And then out of that, this can happen within the church. This can happen in Christian relationships different than it can in any other relationships. We can, as believers, confess sin to each other, ask for forgiveness to others, say some horrible, perverted, disgusting, evil things that we've done or that have been done to us or that we've thought about or, or our motives have wanted us to do. And within the church, because of the gospel, we can say, I forgive you. You can say, I know you and, and I love you. I, I do accept you. There doesn't need to be shame because Christ died for those sins. There is forgiveness for those sins. 
And so we have this beautiful kind of return to paradise, a return to the way that it was supposed to be, both that we can now be known, fully known, and yet be fully accepted, and loneliness is now destroyed both with God as well as with each other. And then finally, as we leave, since we talk so much about uh, marriage, as we saw the creation of marriage today, see the drama of the gospel in marriage. Intentionally do that this week. Whether it's your own marriage, whether it's your parents' marriage, whether it's a marriage you see on TV or, or your neighbors, whatever it might be, when you see beauty and something that moves you, something that's powerful, something that's good, look to the gospel. See how that's just a picture of the gospel. How there's something even greater than that. Something even greater than that, and you have access to that. You've been invited to that. You have an opportunity to have that type of marital relationship with God. So husbands, love the church, or sorry, yes, love the church too. Love Christ like, sorry, love your wife. I just need to read this. Husbands, love like Christ, love the church. Love your wife in that, exce- in that same way. Deny yourself, give yourself up for your wife's benefit so that she will become more and more like Christ. Wives, respond like the church does to Christ. And today at the last, you know, 20 minutes was like, I can never do that. This is so scary. There's no way I can do that. If you're feeling like that, if you're feeling paralyzed or hopeless rather than encouraged, both Christ and the church, the way that they were able to do what we're trying to mirror, the way that they were able to do that was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry, he was empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ, the way that we're able to respond to Jesus is not because we're great people, but because the Holy Spirit empowers us, changes our hearts. And so know you're in good company, right? So just like the church and Christ need the Holy Spirit in order to play out the gospel, we as well need to. So if this is really hard for you, and it's, it's hard for all of us, right? Husbands and wives alike, our prayer this week and for the rest of our lives should be, God, I'm bad at this. I'm really bad at this. This is not natural for me. Holy Spirit, change me. Make me a Christ figure. Make me a church figure. Holy Spirit, help me to deny myself. Help me to not make marriage all about myself. Hiawatha, let that be a prayer that we pray continuously. And finally, singles as well. See the drama of gospel, of the gospel in marriages. See the gospel, appreciate it, and know that you have what that's pointing to. Know that you're not left out. Know that you have a much greater spouse than Spencer or another one of the guys here. You, you have a spouse that will never let you down, that will never fail you, that will never be unfaithful, that will pursue you and protect you and provide for you until he returns to bring you home. So whether you're single or married today, let's lift up marriage, not, not because it's, it's the ultimate goal, but because of what it points to. A loving God who denied himself, who gave himself, who did everything in order to uh, protect and create and wash and love and make his bride holy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel and this, this angle that we saw here in Genesis 2. God, help us to, to believe it and to, to love it to meditate on it. Help marriage not to be something that makes some people feel great in our church and other people feel left out, but rather, as a church, help us to see marriage as a picture of of what it's supposed to be. A loving God who who dies and serves and leads and protects uh, his bride and that bride responding to that. 
protect us from the enemy and uh, our culture and ourselves that would like to tear marriage down or to bring infidelity or abuse or passivity or uh, lots of evil things into our marriages. God, we pray this all for, for your glory and for your name's sake. Amen.